This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 2021 Wellness Retreat is an opportunity for clinicians and non-clinicians to enjoy fall in Tennessee and maybe even a leaf change while you take a deep dive into learning about the mind-body connection and strategies for improving your overall well-being. Up to 21 CEUs will be available for clinicians, but again, you don't need to be a clinician to attend. The retreat is being held October 20th through 23rd at Cumberland Mountain State Park and is limited to 60 people to allow me to have plenty of time to interact with everyone. Go to allceus.com slash wellness to see the detailed schedule and download the registration form. I look forward to seeing you. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on trauma-informed strengths-based approaches to recovery from borderline personality disorder. That's a long title. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this presentation, we're going to review the characteristics of BPD and the function of these symptoms, identify potential causes, explore what's maintaining them and how it's functional. We'll explore the effects of these symptoms on significant others as well as the person with BPD and identify some interventions to help the person more effectively manage emotions and relationships. From a lifespan perspective, most of us are aware that personality disorders have to start um, in when, when a person is younger, and they typically go on for many, many years. They also are pervasive throughout multiple aspects of the person's life. The course of borderline personality disorder um, goes from approximately adolescence to late life and is characterized by a symptomatic switch from affective dysregulation, impulsivity, and suicidality to maladaptive interpersonal functioning and enduring functional impairments as the person gets older. There are often uh, frequent uh, remissions and relapses. So the person may not be symptomatic the whole time. What are we looking for? As the person gets older um, or even when they're younger, there can be times when there's less stress in their life, where they are not running as hot, where there's not much, as much pressure in the pressure cooker, however you want to look at it, and they are able to emotionally regulate more effectively. But when their coping skills are overwhelmed or when they're under a, some sort of chronic stress that is preventing them from getting adequate sleep and keeping that HPA axis activated, then they may be more vulnerable to relapse. So in terms of why do, is there a symptomatic switch, they don't really know. However, we can hypothesize that as the person gets older, they are going to, by virtue of existing, develop some coping skills and emotional regulation skills, um, and they're going to create an environment that is more conducive to their existence. They're going to create an environment that may be a little bit safer for them. It's possible. Also, once they cross that 24 to 26-year-old range, uh, Theoretically, their prefrontal cortex is officially, quote unquote, fully developed. And a lot of our executive functioning and impulse control takes place in that prefrontal cortex. So we would expect that once that is solidified, that people are ha have developed more ability to control impulses. Remember, when people are younger, before that prefrontal cortex is fully developed, when someone is um, 
stressed or when someone has a stress response or even a dopamine response, a lot of the responses are more intense in the adolescent brain. So when they get older, there is a less, potentially a less intense neurochemical reaction. BPD symptoms tend to wax and wane and presentation depends on contextual factors. Do they feel safe? Do they have pre-existing vulnerabilities? That's why it's so important to do effective backward chaining with people to say, okay, what things, no matter how seemingly unrelated, uh, what things might have contributed to you being on edge, contributed to your HPA axis being activated, um, and contributed to making you more vulnerable to emotional dysregulation. BPD behaviors seem to develop to help the person survive dangerous or threatening situations when other options are not available. So when we think about it, a lot of people with BPD experienced adverse childhood experiences. And they may, at that point in time, multiple things may have gone on. Um, the And we'll talk about this a little on the next slide. But they may have experienced trauma. And their caregivers were not able to respond in a comforting, safety-providing, effective manner. doesn't mean their caregivers were the perpetrators. It just means their caregivers couldn't help them. After Hurricane Katrina, if you want to think way back then, um, we had a lot of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, I think, across the, the Southeast living in shelters. And shelters are extremely stressful. The hurricane was extremely traumatic. And no matter how much these caregivers really tried to help their, their children feel safe, feel, you know, well, safe in that environment, it was chaotic. And it was really traumatic and difficult for a lot of people. So it, it's important to recognize that exposure to some of those things can have long-lasting impacts despite the best efforts of the, the caregivers because the child's environment is unavoidably turned upside down. Symptoms can often, and in my in my perception should often be understood through the lens of trauma. In what way does this behavior make sense to keep the person safe? Childhood trauma may increase the risk of borderline personality disorder or BPD symptoms. They may not rise to the level of official diagnosis, but I want you to recognize even subclinical BPD is going to have, um, negative impacts on the person's life and relationships, and even subclinical symptoms indicate that there was something that triggered that reactive compensatory mechanism. So we don't want to minimize it. Uh, we want to look at the behavior itself, whether it is impulsivity or emotional dysregulation or, you know, whatever the behavior is, and say, in what way was this at one point in this person's life functional for them? And what is maintaining it right now? In, in what way is this the best option they have right now? And are there other better options? When children experience childhood trauma, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I know we've talked about it a lot. Remember their brains are kind of like a clay pot that has not been put in the kiln yet. It is still malleable. It's easy to, you know, change its shape or even put holes in it. That's what a child's brain is like. It's much more sensitive to assaults than an adult's brain. Therefore, when they experience trauma, they often have alterations in that HPA axis or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. When it is on activated for too long. The receptors for things like glutamate and cortisol become resistant. They say, we're running too hot. We can't keep this up. So then the person starts to develop 
other syndromes, um, and, and we've talked about the flat and the furious before. Uh, when this happens, when the tissues become resistant, then it takes a whole lot more of cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline, those sorts of things to trigger a response, which you might, might think is great. But unfortunately, those same chemicals, specifically dopamine and norepinephrine, are needed to experience pleasure. So they go into this state of being flat, where their, their brain just can't get excited, good or bad, um, unless there is something significant. But when something significant happens, the floodgate opens. Instead of being a garden hose, it's a fire hose. And that results in an extreme activation of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal uh, axis. When we see this in children, when we see this in adolescents, we need to note that they've got, they, they are potentially experiencing emotional dysregulation. They're not being, quote, brats or dramatic. They are experiencing a much more intense rush of those neurochemicals. And, you know, the exact reason is is really not important at that point in time we want to validate how they're feeling in the moment and say okay i i i can see that you are feeling completely overwhelmed right now all right and and validate how they're feeling and then help them figure out how to deal with it neurotransmission how the neurons actually communicate, how the HPA axis communicates with the HPG axis, uh, the influence of the amygdala, all that stuff gets changed. So certain circuits, particularly fear circuits and threat circuits, become stronger. And the other circuits, the downregulation, if you will, circuits become less, um, become weaker. So there is more emphasis on threat protection, hypervigilance. The endogenous opioid system is altered. And we know that endogenous opioids are involved in the calming response as well as the pain response and the stress response. So people with uh, borderline personality disorder or an, a history of trauma with who develop borderline personality characteristics may also experience more pain than other people and legitimately experiencing more pain because their opioid system is less online or their opioid system is wonky. Neuroplasticity in the childhood period also is altered. Their brain, because it is, it is more sensitive to assaults, um, they found that the brain may react to those assaults, but then the the brain also may reach a point because of the high levels of excitatory neurochemicals, there is pruning back of those neurons. There is um, uh, neurotoxicity that is, is existing. And we actually see changes in areas in the brain, changes in volume, you know, some get smaller, um, that are involved in the stress response, including the prefrontal cortex or the medial prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, which is where our fear processing happens, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is a place in the brain that's kind of the monitor. It monitors social situations to identify, okay, you know, do we need to be threatened, excited, or do we need to be threatened at this point? And the hippocampus, which is also involved in emotional processing. So if we actually have well, we actually do. There's no if about it. Um, physiological changes in the structure of the brain. Then we're going to have a brain that operates differently than someone who has a brain that doesn't have those changes to it. People with borderline personality disorder often have a lack of a sense of self. If, they're on, if they aren't someone's something, then they're nothing. And we want to look at that. If they grew up in an environment where the only way they could get love, attention, security was to make sure that they filled a function, that they were a caregiver, that they, you know, appeased someone else, um, then when they grow up, they may not know what they like. 
They may not know what they want to do because they've spent all of their life trying to be someone else's something, trying to fill a role. And we want to recognize that a lot of people with borderline personality characteristics and or addictions, because there's a lot of borderline personality characteristics in active addiction, may have grown up in a family where there was one or more caregivers who had borderline personality characteristics or an addiction. Doesn't mean it is 100% true. Because like I said, there are times where children experience traumas and their parents did their, you know, very best to help the child and the child wasn't able to cope. There are children who are born and they are high needs children. They tend to be more highly sensitive and dysregulate easier from jump. But because that happens, if they're not in a validating environment that says, you know, okay, you know, little 18-month-old, I can see that you are, you know, completely melting down here and providing them the structure and safety uh, that they need at that point, then it creates an invalidating environment and fails to teach them ways to control or um, tolerate their distress and re-regulate themselves. A lot of people with BPD are unlovable for who they are and for the rest of the presentation to save time, I'm just going to say people with BPD. Please know that that means people with BPD or BPD characteristics, even if they don't meet the threshold. Anyhow, a lot of times they receive that message that you're lovable for what you do, not who you are. They live in near constant fear of abandonment. And if they're in a relationship that's secure, they are hypervigilant to micro-expressions or anything that might indicate that there's the slightest chance that they may be abandoned. They experience emotional discontrol or dysregulation and have an inability to effectively self-soothe a lot of times, or at least inability to self-soothe in healthy ways, and a lack of effective coping skills. When people with BPD experience emotional dysregulation, they feel completely out of control a lot of times. And sometimes in order to self-soothe, they may engage in extreme behaviors such as uh, non-suicidal self-injury or even suicidal behaviors to cope. And most of the time, the intent is non-suicidal self-injury. However, it's easy, especially in a state of extreme distress, to cross that line. So we don't want to minimize the pain, the agony, and the terror that's associated with emotional discontrol. They have a lack of emotional boundaries and sometimes physical boundaries. And they often learn that anger is used to control others and is rewarded. So people with Borderline personality disorder often experience intense and inappropriate anger. Now, what is anger? Anger is half of the stress response. It's half of the fight or flee response. And in people with borderline personality disorder, when they start feeling terrified, they may become enraged and act out in order to punish people who made them feel that way or to try to get people to feel guilty, um, and come back. So it is often the behaviors serve a purpose in order to prevent abandonment. So what's the first step in treatment? Because this is all about strengths-based trauma-informed treatment. Address the emotional dysregulation. We really need to identify what the person's vulnerabilities are. We need to use a biopsychosocial approach to this. Biologically, what happens if they're sleep deprived? Biologically, what happens if their blood sugar is low? What happens if, you know, they're not eating a healthy diet? Some people are more sensitive to certain foods. What happens if they eat too much? There is a strong correlation um, or comorbidity between borderline personality disorder and eating disorders. 
And people with eating disorders, when they eat too much, uh, can feel very guilty, can feel very enraged um, and angry at themselves and the world, and they start rejecting themselves. That's a whole different presentation. But uh, we do want to look at some of the biological issues. We want to look at sickness. You know, are they more vulnerable to being edgy or irritable when they don't feel well, when they're in pain, if they take certain medications like decongestants, which are stimulants. We want to get granular. Like I said, nothing is too um, out in left field to consider. Doesn't mean you have to embrace it, but let's consider any possibilities and then we can whittle it down. We want to look at... um, Affectively, you know, what makes them more vulnerable when obviously if they get up and they're in a bad mood or if they're depressed about something or grieving about something, then they may be more, feel more vulnerable at that point in time. So, you know, that's one of those obvious ones that we usually take a look at. We want to look at cognitions that make people more vulnerable. If people are using cognitive distortions, and and we're gonna talk about that some in a little while, does that make them more vulnerable to dysregulation? If they are using all or none thinking or personalization or mind reading, are they more hypersensitive to what's going on? Do they tend to have more episodes versus when they're using something like dialectical uh, thinking? We want to look at their environment. You know, I said nothing's too far out of bounds. But if you've read books like uh, The Body Keeps the Score and you've learned about somatic experiencing, sometimes uh, sensory triggers can start the ball rolling, so to speak. So we want to pay attention to things like smells, sights, and that includes people they're seeing, people they're around. Some people... And, you know, I think we all can relate that there are some people in the world that put us more on edge, that we're more on edge around for whatever reason, you know, we, it's important to look at why that is, but it's also important just to know that when I'm around this person, I am more likely to feel vulnerable or threatened or edgy or angry. It's important to recognize that because before they interact with that person, you know, especially like if it's somebody at work, um, it's important for them to recognize before they interact with that person, what can they do to minimize the chances that that interaction is going to go south, that that interaction is going to trigger them. So there are a lot of things that we really want to consider. We also want to consider time of day, for example. Some people are morning people. Some people are evening people. For me, I'm a morning person. I can deal with something, you know, a lot easier before, you know, three in the afternoon. I get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, depending on what, whether it's summer or winter. So, you know, by the time we get later into the evening, I'm plum exhausted. So if my son comes up from the barn with, you know, an injured chicken or something that I've actually got to do something with, you know, um, it can feel a lot, it feels a lot more overwhelming to me. So imagine somebody who experiences emotional discontrol. They're already exhausted. You know, they've had a long day. They may have even slept well the night before, but they've had a long day and something goes wrong. So we do want to look at all of these things. We also want to empower them to look back and identify what works to help them self-soothe. You know, this is where the strength space comes in. What have you done in the past to mitigate your vulnerabilities when you've had them? You know, if you didn't sleep well the night before, you know you're, you know, more likely to have a bad day, to have some symptoms. So what did you do in order to prevent them as much as possible? And they know that when they do it emotionally dysregulate, they've survived up until now. So what have they done? And if some of the things that they've done have been harmful, we want to look at, okay, what are some alternatives? 
it doesn't work for everybody uh, by any means, but I've had uh, people that I've worked with before who, instead of engaging in the behaviors that they were engaging in, um, would hold ice cubes. That's my favorite one, holding ice cubes. I had uh, another person who would drop to the floor and just do push-ups till they couldn't do push-ups anymore. Um, I had another person who would use symbolically a red ink pen and draw on themselves. Now that's not ideally what, you know, (laughs) we want because ink has its own, especially ballpoint pen ink is probably not very good to be putting on our skin, but it was a whole lot better than the alternatives. So we want to start identifying what has worked and what are some ways that you could modify that if it was harmful, modify that to possibly work for you now. Oh, I had one adolescent that I worked with who had a favorite band and she would put on her headphones whenever she was feeling dysregulated and just listen to that band because she would listen to the words and she would get caught up in the songs and it would distract her. It would help her with her distress tolerance. So there's a lot of different things. And we'll help, we want to help them identify other effective distress tolerance techniques. And if you're familiar with dialectical behavior therapy, you know, Linehan has the mnemonics, accepts and improve, um, that can be really effective at helping people identify, uh, techniques that they can use. And Melissa is very correct. It is crucial to identify, and I actually created some posters um, that can be used, and I would say down to even to elementary school. So children, no matter what age, are exposed to them, but created posters with accepts and improve and pictures for the littler kids of different things that they can do at each level. In school, you're not going to have ice cubes handy to go go hold, but what can they do? Uh, One of the things they can do is go to the bathroom, splash cool water on their face. If they're wearing makeup, they may not want to do that. Another thing they can do is go into the bathroom, uh, go into the stall in the bathroom and do a wall sit. You back up against the wall, walk your feet out a little bit and slide down until your thighs are parallel to the ground. And within about 10 or 15 seconds, that really starts to burn like nobody's business. And it's not the be-all, end-all, but it certainly distracts you for a moment until the person's system can catch up and help them, the adrenaline go away a little bit and help them get into their wise mind. But yes, educating teachers about this sort of thing is really helpful so they can notice when students are starting to become triggered. They can notice or they may know ahead of time that, you know, if... Sally gets an F on a test, um, or in some cases, if Sally gets a B on a test, that is a trigger for dysregulation, and they can be sensitive to that in handing out the tests instead of just passing it out and going, well, there's your grade, good luck, see you tomorrow. Um, So yes, teachers can be helpful, school counselors can be helpful, um, and there's a lot of things that can be done, but that actually might be a great class to do is handling BPD in the classroom. Uh, the next step, once you have helped the person identify their vulnerabilities and some distress tolerance skills in order to help them start being safer, you want to identify the most salient symptoms for that person. You know, do they tend to dysregulate? You know, is that a really prominent symptom for them when they are or if they are impulsive quote unquote what does that look like for them you know um we want to look at the symptoms function in what way is this behavior protective we're going to talk about these in a minute alternate ways to meet that need by asking what is the behavior communicating if the person becomes you know enraged They have this sudden rush of anger. Remembering that anger is a response to a perceived threat. So in what way is anger helping that person potentially feel like they're safe right now? What are they afraid of and what do they need? 
We want to identify what the symptom looks like for the person. So inappropriate anger, you know, what does that look like? For some people, they will internalize the anger and may engage in self-harm. For other people, they externalize the anger. They may yell. Um, other people may go on a really long run um, and to the point that they're hurting themselves. Um, so we do want to look at what is your... When you get angry, what is your response? How is that behavior being maintained? What are the benefits and other ways to achieve the same or similar benefit? And generally, the benefits revolve around helping the person re-regulate and feel safe and empowered. You know, three very simple things. We also want to identify co-occurring issues. There is a strong comorbidity between um, borderline personality disorder, depression, anxiety, PTSD, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, and addictive behaviors. So we don't want to just say, okay, well, you're presenting with BPD symptoms, so that must be what's going on. We need to look because most of the time there's other stuff going on. And if we don't also address those comorbid confounding issues, then maximal recovery is going to be probably nearly impossible to achieve. So let's talk about some of these symptoms. Frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. Now that can look very different for different people. But ultimately, we want to think back to when this person experienced their trauma. How old were they? What did abandonment look like to them? What made them feel abandoned? And in what ways was that threatening to them? You know, a lot of times when there's frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, there are also pretty significant attachment issues that the person experiences. So we want to see, what does it look like? If they are hypervigilant or hypersensitive to rejection or criticism, what's the benefit to that? Well, in the past, it may have prevented them from getting rejected. When they were knee-high to a grasshopper, it may have prevented them from getting rejected from their caregivers so they stayed safe. If they were hypersensitive to rejection or criticism, they may have grown up in an environment that was abusive or neglectful. And if that caregiver became reject rejecting, um, that could have signaled that worse things were to come. So we want to recognize the benefits of these. And being hypersensitive and hypervigilant for rejection and criticism can mean that they can protect themselves more effectively. Now, in adult life, when we are hypervigilant or hypersensitive to rejection or criticism, that means that a lot of times we're going to get false positives. We're going to take things too personally that weren't meant personally at all. Um, or, or we may take something that's constructive and overgeneralize it. And instead of seeing it as constructive feedback about X, we see it as a rejection of us and a criticism of us as human beings. They may have anger at or belittle others to control them. Well, this may be what happened to the, to the person. So they may have learned it and not know another way to respond. They may have found that as they got older, this was an effective way to control other people to keep them from abandoning them. They may act out to control through guilt. Look at what you made me do. Um, in addictions, sometimes we'll have people or in addiction recovery. Sometimes we'll have people when they relapse blame other people, you know, and, and I had one client told, tell me point blank one time, I decided to drink at this person. You know, I went and I relapsed to make them feel guilty for being mean to me. And I was like, okay, well, that's good insight that you can identify the, the motivation behind the behavior. How did that end up working out? Um, and in that particular situation, the person really didn't feel all that guilty at all. And so it didn't work out well. But we want to recognize that there is a function. The origins of abandonment fears. Well, obviously, again, we're not covering everything. 
But a lot of times there's a failure to develop a sense of self due to constantly trying to appease caregivers, feeling a role, growing up in an environment of conditional positive regard. I only love you if. If they grew up in a family where there was an addiction, there is often the tagline, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Because the person with the addiction controls the family sort of like a, a puppeteer. In a family where there is somebody with BPD, there may be the tagline, do as I say or else, which is, um, and I can't remember who wrote the book, uh, Stop Walking on Eggshells, but that's exactly what we're talking about here. In a family where there's someone with borderline personality, uh, a lot of times people just tiptoe around hoping not to anger the person with BPD. A lot of times the person with BPD has a history of abandonment or rejection. If they're, if they are something to someone, then they're filling a need. This rejection, this abandonment may come from a caregiver that has an addiction or a mental health issue that is physically there, but unable to connect and create that secure attachment. They're unable to, um, well, connect with the child, which is terrifying to a child if they are being ignored or the parent is not consistent and responsive to their needs. So lack of a secure attachment in early childhood is significantly associated with later development of borderline personality characteristics. Likewise, a history of neglect or abuse, you know, overt rejection and hurting the child, telling them, I wish you were never born. You know, those things are also, even if it's verbal abuse, are, are also extremely painful and rejecting and hurt the child's self-esteem. Effects for significant others. When the person with borderline personality disorder begins these frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, then the person with, uh, then the significant others are afraid to leave. They feel like they can't leave. They may feel like it's their responsibility to care for the person with borderline personality, um, or they may feel guilty think that, thinking that they caused it. They may think they hate me. I can't do anything right, but they're going to die if I leave. So I'm kind of damned if I do, damned if I don't. Um, and, and it's important to recognize this, thinking about some of the um, instances or some of the behaviors that people with borderline personality disorder use in order to try to avoid abandonment, um, we can see how they may be able to manipulate others because those significant others, the emphasis on significant, you know, they do care about the person, but they feel like they're caught in this no-win situation. In terms of the person with BPD, they may feel that they're not worthy or lovable and, and or can't survive without the relationship. They never had that secure attachment to teach them coping and, um, and, and down-regulation skills, re-regulation skills. So they may be terrified that if they don't have that person there to help them, that they will basically implode. Interventions help the person develop a sense of self. Who are they? What do they like? Help them enhance their self-esteem. Figure out why they are okay for who they are. You know, not for what they do, but for who they are. Help them enhance their self-efficacy, their belief in their capacity to deal with life, to deal with emotions, to cope. Help them differentiate between who they are and what they do. Yeah, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to fail. But does that mean that they are a failure? And, and it's important to separate failure at a task from failure as a human being and talk about what that means to the person. Explore with them what makes someone lovable. Um, and they're, in, instead of saying what makes you lovable, saying what makes someone lovable. And then once you've talked about that, going back and saying, okay, which of those characteristics do you have? Explore their abandonment triggers. There may be 
even um, expressions or body language or even the smell of their caregiver's uh, perfume, if it's still made, uh, may trigger memories of childhood, trigger that HPA axis, and they may not even understand why, but then they may start feeling anxious. So we do want to explore those abandonment triggers. Identify and address messages in the past that communicated unlovability or conditions of worth. Ask them, how would you have wanted your caregiver to act? And then encourage them to do that. Encourage them to nurture themselves as they wanted to be nurtured. Explore the notion of responsibility. Who and what are responsible, uh, are you responsible for in the present context? Now, when they were, you know, children, maybe they were, they felt like they were responsible. They were told they were responsible for taking care of their siblings or even their caregivers. They were, they were told they were responsible for how they made somebody feel. Well, we can look back in retrospect and go, okay, what was reasonable for you to be responsible for as a six-year-old? But we want to really focus on the present and say, what are you responsible for right now? And who? Other people. Who are you responsible for? Their, their well-being, their happiness, their, their beha behaviors, their choices. Um, now, if, if they have children, the answer may be a little bit different than if they are an adult with no children and um, their caregivers are obviously significantly older than them. So we want to look at it rationally. You know, who are you responsible for and what aspects? I work with uh, my children a lot and, you know, hopefully other people um, also recognize that Yes, you can trigger a feeling in somebody else. You can trigger anger or fear or sadness or whatever in somebody else. But it's their responsibility for what they do with it. It's their responsibility to, for how they choose to react in that moment to that situation. So we can't control other people's behaviors. Um, and, and that's an important takeaway message. Which takes us back down to, are you responsible for yourself? And helping them recognize that nobody can make you do these things. They can trigger a feeling that makes you have the thought that you want to, going back to acceptance and commitment therapy, but they can't act, well, generally, they're not actually making you. They're not holding you there and pouring liquor down your throat or forcing you to do something. They are triggering a feeling that makes the person want to do something um, in that situation. So we want to help them differentiate and help them recognize where their power is in that sequence of events. We want to explore and address abandonment rejection triggers, people, places, things, even dates, like a, the date that their spouse left them or you know, the date that somebody passed away. We want to explore sensory experiences, including expressions and body language, and explore faulty thinking, like mind reading or projection, assuming that they know what somebody is thinking or wanting from them, or that assuming that they're going to be rejected. So we go back to what are the facts in the situation? Let's get away from that emotional reasoning. Personalization. People with BPD are, uh, have very, very poor emotional and cognitive boundaries because they were taught it was not safe to have their own feelings or thoughts a lot of times. Um, so we want to help them address personalization and find alternative explanations for why somebody may have acted a certain way that had nothing to do with them. And we want to explore things like all or nothing thinking and encourage them to find exceptions instead of thinking, you know, I can never handle it when this happens. Well, let's look at that. You know, maybe you can't think of any time where you handled it completely, but maybe you're getting better and you're able to delay the or reduce the impact of the event. 
Relationships are unstable or intense. Well, if the person desperately fears abandonment, then yeah, their relationships are probably going to be unstable and intense because there is just this persistent level of underlying anxiety. And so the person is probably going to behave more erratically based on a lot of things that their significant others may not even be aware of. They may not be aware of a certain look or a certain movement or, you know, whatever is triggering to that person. Controlling others provides a feeling of safety and predictability. So we want to see, say, what does it look like? Well, there's intense and unpredictable interactions. If you do what I want, I love you. If you behave, if you obey me, then I know that you love me and you're not going to leave me. Therefore, I can love you. If you do not do exactly what I want, exactly the way I want, then that means you're rejecting me and that makes me feel scared, terrified even. Therefore, I'm going to drop those walls and I hate you. There isn't a lot of middle ground and a lot of times it feels like um, when you're in a relationship with somebody who has BPD that... At the slightest turmoil in the relationship, they cut bait. Um, Everyone walks on eggshells and there's often a Jekyll Hyde presentation. The person with BPD uh, often presents in different ways because of the myriad of triggers for that abandonment anxiety, for their sense of unsafeness, uh, wherever that came from, that... Significant others may not be aware of why a person is on the warpath one day and not the next day, or why they respond to situation X in a, just fine on Monday, but on Wednesday, the same thing happens, and oh boy, the stuff hit the fan. So it's very confusing to the people in the relationship with BP, uh, someone with BPD. And a lot of times, most of the time, I would venture to say, it's also very confusing to the person with BPD because they often don't understand where all this stuff is coming from because so much of it is ingrained, somatic, back there in the amygdala. You know, a lot of times they don't recognize how many triggers that have been generalized in their environment. Unstable relationships may have originated because the children were rejected or the caregiver was emotionally or physically unavailable at an age in which the child was still thinking in concrete, all or nothing terms. So this happened, you know, maybe up to like age 11 when children still haven't developed abstract thinking. So it's all or none. My, My caregiver loves me or my caregiver hates me. My caregiver abuses me, therefore for they must hate me, you know, so the the child switches back and forth. If the caregiver is being kind, they're like, okay, my caregiver loves me. The person with BPD expects rejection and has never or almost never experienced an authentic relationship with themselves or others. Most people with BPD are not in touch with themselves. There's a lack of a secure attachment, which produces an inability to self-soothe and it's terrifying. And the person with BPD fears that they can't cope on their own. Repeated rejections become most salient and support all or nothing thinking. They're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't mean to. Their behaviors, their self-protective behaviors are so mysterious to other people and so distressful that a lot of times it ends up distancing them from other people, which provides a self-confirmation that, oh, I must not be lovable. So we need to potentially help people start recognizing their, uh, the impact of their behaviors and recognizing that their behaviors may have been being rejected, whereas those people really loved them, but they didn't know how to cope with the behaviors. In terms of significant others, um, things are all, or, and the person, things are often all or nothing, good or bad. People who love a person who has BPD 
live in the same dichotomous world because it is controlled by the person with BPD. They both end up feeling that they have little control over what happens, how others treat them, or if they're lovable. The person with BPD often feels like their perspective is right and the other person's is wrong. And if they would only listen, things would be okay. So the person, the significant others start feeling um, like they can't do anything right. Like the person's, uh, the, the patient's needs come first and theirs are always subordinate, which really hurts self-esteem, really makes people feel helpless and hopeless. They often feel, significant others often feel that they can't do anything right. They're damned if they do, they're dam damned if they don't, so they just may give up. They may feel like they're not lovable unless they do what the patient wants and their wants, thoughts, and needs are not valid. The only valid thoughts, wants, and needs are that of the person with borderline personality. Other people are not trustworthy. What is said one day may be different the next. With the person with BPD, as, I, as I've talked about already, the myriad of triggers in the environment can cause them to react differently on different days. So context is key. Interventions. Use cognitive behavioral therapy and backward and forward chaining to explore and address real and perceived rejection from others that are in real life, you know, other human beings, from the hecklers in their own head, the messages that they've internalized, and from themselves. I mean, they've got the hecklers, then they've got themselves, and, and both of those are often very cruel to the person with borderline personality. Differentiate dislike of actions and ideas from dislike of a person and learn about locus of control. Help them develop a, the ability to examine and try to di differentiate what can and cannot be controlled and empower them to, to have the courage to change the, the things they can. Help them learn to identify and assertively communicate needs and wants and explore characteristics of healthy relationships and address the parts of those relationships that feel scary, like honesty, trust, and hope. In terms of self-damaging impulsivity, it often serves as a means of a distraction or escape. They can't control what's going on inside. They can't control that pain, but they can control physical pain. They can control exterior pain and, uh, or what they, do, their, their external behaviors. So that may be serving as a distraction or escape from extreme emotional turmoil or pain, or it may be a way of getting attention to manipulate other people going because they feel so out of control. If they act impulsively, then other people come to their rescue. Other people finally pay attention. What we need to help people recognize is how to communicate their need for assistance, support, et cetera, safety, before it gets to the point where they've got to take, where they feel they have to take extreme actions. What it looks like, um, it can be impulsivity in the form of self-harm, excessive spending, addictive behaviors, violence towards self or others, or even overly sexualized behavior. This may emerge because of a lack of coping skills in the face of overwhelming emotions. They didn't know how to cope and they just frantically tried to find something that would either help them tolerate the distress or get somebody's attention because the caregivers just weren't consistent and responsive. It can originate out of an inability to self-soothe. And again, it was the only way to get people to pay attention or understand. In terms of the effects, <clears throat> if I blank, this person would be happier and take better care of themselves. So the significant other may start thinking, if I do X, then these symptoms will go away. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's just not so. I'm bad. If I were better, the person wouldn't have these problems. Negative reactions of others are all my fault and I must fix it. 
I'm completely responsible for other people's thoughts, feelings, or actions. Or as I, the example I gave before, you made me do these things, putting blame out there. So there's a lot of messages that the significant others get from this self-damaging impulsivity, which is damaging to them as well. Interventions help people develop distress tolerance, de-escalation, self-soothing behaviors. Go back and revisit those vulnerabilities and prevention, uh, preventing them as much as possible from a biopsychosocial environmental perspective. You also want to look at mitigating because you're not going to be able to completely prevent vulnerabilities. So when some of these things happen that make you more vulnerable, when you're sick, when you're tired, when you, you know, fill in the blank, what can you do to help yourself get through the day without having you know, symptoms, whatever that would look like for that person? Uh, for me, We've talked before about uh, how I don't do well without enough sleep. <clears throat> so when I would get up, especially when I had little ones at the house and I wasn't getting enough quality sleep, if I got up in the morning and I was exhausted, that usually also meant I was grumpy as all get out. When I would go to work, I would often keep my door shut. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, so I didn't have the random person dropping in to talk or, or do whatever, because I would get impatient with them. You know, I set stronger boundaries in order to protect myself because I knew I didn't have near as much energy that day. Whereas on days when I had enough sleep, I used to keep my door open so people could drop in. Mindfulness is a huge beneficial skill for all people, but um, it can be really helpful for people with borderline personality because it helps them become more aware of their triggers, their vulnerabilities, and their warning signs. They can recognize when they, if, if they start feeling like they're going to spiral, they can recognize that and take early intervention. We want to help them with coping skill development and purposeful action. Take that from acceptance and commitment therapy helping them identify behaviors, ways to react to distress that help them move toward their goals, not away from them. <coughs> Pharmacological treatment. Um, Abilify produced reductions in anger, impulsivity, depression, and anxiety. Zeprexa showed small improvements in anger and anxiety. Depakote produced improvements in anger and depression. Lamictal showed benefits for impulsivity and anger. Topamax was effective for impulsivity, anxiety, and anger. And omega-3 fatty acids showed improvements in depression. Now, I'm not endorsing any of these medications. It's just easier to say the trade name than the generic name. But this was based on an article from the um, American Academy of Family Physicians from 2019. So this is relatively up-to-date pharmacologic information. People with BPD first need to learn how to safely deal with intense feelings. Specific issues which may trigger these feelings and interventions include um, poorly developed or unstable self-image, often associated with excessive self-criticism, we want to help them develop their self-concept and differentiate the what's from the... They may have interpersonal hypersensitivity. So we want to help them develop self-soothing skills and examine some of those cognitive distortions that are contributing to the uh, hypervigilance. They have intense, unstable, and conflicted relationships. We want to help them learn how to be honest about their wants, needs, and fears with themselves as well as others. So developing mindfulness and authenticity, super hard, super terrifying, because they were probably told as they were growing up that their wants, needs, and fears were overreactions or invalid. So they may reject their own wants, needs, and fears because they've internalized that message. So we need to help people get past that. Develop the ability to learn to trust themselves. Start learning what it means to trust others and learn how to self set healthy boundaries. Um, okay. 
John points out in the inpatient settings, patient, these patients can be very challenging. Medications not typically used, and we have to try to manage the secondary gains they get from being in the hospital um, or when they try to be the most acute patient on the unit in order to get the most amount of attention from staff. So yes, uh, people with BPD, especially those who are in treatment for something, obviously they've got confounding issues that are going on and they feel out of control. They feel vulnerable. They feel raw. They feel terrified. So they may uh, be seeking that comfort that because they don't feel like they can uh, do it. So in inpatient settings, it is very difficult and it often does require a lot of work empowering the person validating their feelings, being responsive to their needs, you know, when they say that they're feeling out of control, validating how they feel, working with them to develop skills and tools that may help them go a little bit longer before they need help, and then really rewarding and, and putting a lot of effort into um, uh, highlighting their self-efficacy as they become more effective at coping. But yes, people with BPD do require a lot more one-on-one -on -one time, a lot more counselor time because their neurochemistry is so much different because they do significantly have a more significant whatever I'm trying to say, they dysregulate a whole lot more intensely and it's from a neurochemical perspective. So their, their feelings feel more intense to them and more overpowering. So they do require more assistance until they can learn how to reg better regulate their HPA axis. Alrighty, everybody have a fabulous weekend uh, here in Middle Tennessee, it is supposed to be gorgeous over the weekend, nice and cool. So those of you who are east of me, expect some cool weather coming in the next few days. And uh, I will see you guys on, oh, actually, we're starting our new series next week. So beginning in June, remember we're doing uh, one weekend a month where we do four hours on Saturday and four hours on Sunday. They're going to be more interactive, so we will, I will actually like pause and we will have some um, interact, more interactive discussions about what's going on since it is a longer period of time. So you're not sitting there for four hours, like just trying to stay awake because I, I know that's can be challenging, but hopefully that'll work better into some people's schedules. So I hope to see all of you on uh, June 5th and 6th.